Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <coughs> So continuing in our study of Bulugh al-Maram, <coughs> Kitab al-Salah, Bab Sifat al-Salah, the chapter regarding the description of the prayer. So I believe we reach the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, radiyallahu anhu. Qal, kana Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, إِذَا رَفَعَ رَأْسَهُ مِنَ الرُّكُوعِ قَالْ أَلَّهُمَّ رَبَّنَا وَلَكَ الْحَمْدُ مِلْءَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمِلْءَ الْأَرْضِ وَمِلْءَ مَا شِئْتَ مِنْ شَيْءٍ بَعْدِ أَهْلَ الثَّنَاءِ وَالْمَجْدِ أَحَقُّ مَا قَالَ الْعَبْدُ وَكُلُّنَا لَكَ عَبْدِ اللَّهُمَّ لَا مَانِعَ لِمَا أَعْطَيْتَ وَلَا مُعْطِيَ لِمَا مَنَعْتَ وَلَا يَنْفَعُ ذَا الْجَدِّ مِنْكَ الْجَدِّ رواه مسلم In this hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri رضي الله عنه He says that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم when he would raise his head from the ruku' when the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم would raise his head from the ruku' meaning when he would rise up from the ruku' then he would say this dua that you have heard the meaning of which is O Allah our Lord to you is praise in all the heavens and all the earth and all that pleases you to create afterwards you are or you who are worthy of praise and glory most worthy of what a slave says, and we are all your slaves. No one can withhold what you give, or give what you withhold, and riches cannot avail a wealthy person against you. This is one of the du'as that is mentioned, the Prophet wasallam would say, when rising up from the ruku' when rising up from the ruku' then this is the dua that is mentioned as for the opening part of this dua the opening part of this supplication then it is obligatory to say it it is obligatory to say the opening part allahumma rabbana walakal hamd that section a person must say as he is rising up from the ruku'ah. As for the remainder of the dua, مِلْ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمِلْ الْأَرْضِ وَمِلْ أَمَا شِئْتَ مِنْ شَيْءٍ بَعْدِ To the end of the dua, the rest of it is an optional section of the dua which is mustahab to be read. It is mustahab to recite the remainder but the opening section, Allahumma Rabbana Walakal Hamd, then that section is obligatory to recite for the one who is uh, at that stage in the prayer, rising up from the ruku'ah. If somebody left that opening section of this supplication, Rabbana Walakal Hamd, as they rise up, then the prayer wouldn't be correct then the prayer would not be correct if that individual missed out that section. However, if the person missed out the remainder of it, the prayer would still be correct. So there is a difference between the opening of the dua and the remainder of it. The opening of it is wajib, meaning that if a person left it, there would be a deficiency in the prayer, he would have to make the prostration of forgetfulness, as for the remainder of it, then it is supererogatory and mustahab to recite. 
The opening section of the dua actually has various narrations to it. There are various narrations as to what that opening section of the dua should be recited as. One of those is, Allahumma Rabbana lakal hamd. Allahumma Rabbana lakal hamd. This is one of the narrations. Another one is, without Allahumma, just Rabbana lakal hamd. Rabbana lakal hamd. Whereas the first one was, Allahumma Rabbana lakal hamd. The second one, just Rabbana lakal hamd. Another version of it is, Allahumma Rabbana wa lakal hamd. Allahumma Rabbana wa lakal hamd. And the fourth version of it is, Rabbana wa lakal hamd. So notice the first two versions do not have a wow. The first two versions do not have a wow. It is Allahumma Rabbana Laka Alhamd. Or Rabbana Laka Alhamd. Then the third and the fourth versions have the wow. Allahumma Rabbana Wa Laka Alhamd. Or without the Allahumma Rabbana Wa Laka Alhamd. They are the four versions of this opening section of the dua. The best of those four versions, as Shaykh Al-Fawzan says, is when you recite, Allahumma Rabbana wa lakal hamd. Allahumma Rabbana wa lakal hamd. That, the Shaykh says, is the most complete of the versions. That is the most complete of the versions to say, Allahumma Rabbana wa lakal hamd. So this is the dua that the Prophet ﷺ used to recite upon raising up from the ruku'ah. Allahumma Rabbana wa lakal hamd. That O Allah, our Lord, to you is all of the praise. And then it continues, Mil as-samawati wa mil al-ard. In all of the heavens, as-samawat, and in all of the earth, the fill of the earth and the fill of the heavens. And all of that which you may wish to create thereafter. Meaning that the praise to Allah is comprehensive. All of the praise is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the heavens, in the earth, in all of that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates. And then it continues, Ahla thana'i wal majd, the one who is worthy of praise and glory, Allah who is worthy of praise and glory, Ahaqqu ma qala al-abd, wa kulluna laka al-abd, he is most worthy of what a slave says, Allah is most worthy of what a slave says, in terms of our praise for Allah, uh, and then, Allahumma la mani'a lima a'atayt, that, O oh Allah, there is no one to prevent that which you give, and there is no one to give that which you hold back or prevent. Wala mu'ati lima mana'at, wala yanfa'u dhal jiddi minkal jidd, and that the riches of a person cannot avail a wealthy person against you. This is the dua that the Prophet ﷺ used to recite when rising up from the ruku'ah. There is one issue to mention regarding this supplication, which is that there is a difference of opinion between the scholars regarding what actually has to be recited, or what combination of the supplications have to be recited when rising up from the ruku'ah. <coughs> Because now we have Sami'allahu liman hamida Rabbana walakal hamd From those supplications What has to be recited This is where there is a difference of opinion Between the scholars The scholars are differed Over what the person praying has to recite Is it sufficient 
Is it enough for a person to simply say, Sami'allahu liman hamidah, and then rise up as he says that and leave it at that? To not say, Rabbana walakal hamd, just to say, Sami'allahu liman hamidah, and to rise up. Is that sufficient? Or does a person have to add to it, Rabbana walakal hamd? And therefore end up with Sami'allahu liman hamida Rabbana walakal hamda Does he have to say all of it? Here there's a discussion amongst the scholars as to what needs to be said. Some of the scholars said, and this is the first opinion, that anybody praying has to say both parts. Sami'allahu liman hamida Rabbana walakal hamd. Anyone praying, whoever prays, they have to say both parts. What do we mean by anybody who prays or whoever prays? Meaning there are different states of prayer. Three main different states of prayer. What are the three different states of prayer? The three different states of prayer. Either you are the Imam. When you're praying a particular prayer, you may be the Imam. That is one state whilst praying. The second state is, if you're not the Imam, you may be praying and you are one of the congregation. You are one of those being led by the Imam. So the second state whilst praying is that you are one of those in the congregation being led by the Imam. The third possible state of prayer is what? When you're praying alone, you're not praying in a congregation. You're not the imam, you're not being led by an imam, you're not in a congregation. You're praying alone somewhere by yourself. So you have three states of prayer. Either you're the imam, or you are being led by the imam in congregation, or you are not in a congregation. You're alone by yourself praying somewhere. The first opinion here says, whether you are the imam, whether you are being led by the imam, whether you are praying alone somewhere, in any given state, when you pray, you must say, Sami'allahu liman hamida rabbana walakal hamd. All of it, as you are rising up. And then the hadith that we've just mentioned, the remainder, that is supererogatory, mustahab, if you recite that. But here the scholars say, the first opinion, these parts must be read by everyone praying. Whatever situation you may be in, whatever state of prayer you are in, whether you're the imam or being led or by yourself. <clears throat> However, there is one point of detail with that opinion. This opinion which states that whatever state of prayer you are in, you must say it. With regards to the imam, they give some extra detail. With regards to the imam, they give some extra detail which is that the Imam, he says, Sami'allahu liman hamida. That you say, Sami'allahu liman hamida. Loud. But then, Rabbana walakal hamd, quietly. If you're the Imam, you say, Sami'allahu liman hamida. Out loud. رَبَّنَا وَلَكَ الْحَمْدِ Quietly to yourself. As for if you are being led by the imam in congregation, or you are praying by yourself somewhere, then you say both parts, loud or quiet, quietly. If you are in the congregation being led by the imam, then you say both parts quietly. You say it to yourself quietly if you're in the congregation in the rows, or if you're praying by yourself somewhere, you say it quietly to yourself. But if you're the Imam, then that part has to be out loud as you rise up from the ruku'ah, quietly to yourself as the Imam. So the first opinion says, whatever state you're in, you must say both parts. And then they explain how the imam says the two parts, first part loud, second part quiet. And the others, if you're in the congregation or by yourself, both parts quiet. The second opinion is, and this is what is 
popular amongst the people of knowledge. It is known amongst the people of knowledge, widespread opinion amongst the people of knowledge, which is that the imam and the one who is praying by himself, they both say, Sami'allahu liman hamida, Rabbana walakal hamd. If you are the imam, you say both parts. If you are praying by yourself somewhere, you say both parts. However, they say that if you are in the congregation being led by the imam, then you only say, Rabbana walakal hamd. So the second opinion is, if you are the imam, the same as the first, you say both parts. If you're praying by yourself, you say both parts. But if you are in the congregation being led by the imam, in this opinion which is widespread amongst the scholars and common uh, amongst many of the scholars, is that you do not say, Sami'allahu liman hamida, you only say, Rabbana walakal hamd. What's the proof for that? The hadith. Where the Prophet ﷺ mentioned, وَإِذَا قَالَ سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَ قُولُوا رَبَّنَا وَلَكَ الْحَمْدِ That if the Imam says, سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَ When the Imam says, سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَ قُولُوا Then you say, رَبَّنَا وَلَكَ الْحَمْدِ So the scholars who take this opinion use this hadith. They say the Prophet ﷺ said, when the Imam says, سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدَ then you just say, Rabbana walakal hamd. The ones who are being led in the prayer, when you hear the Imam say, Sami'allahu liman hamidah, then when you rise up, all you say is, Rabbana walakal hamd. But if you're the Imam, you're going to say, Rabbana walakal hamd also quietly to yourself afterwards. And if you're praying by yourself, you're going to say both parts too. But in this second opinion, the only difference is if you're in the prayer being led by the imam, then you only say, Rabbana walakal hamd. The third opinion is that if you are praying by yourself, then you say both parts. If you're praying by yourself, then you say both parts. Sami'allahu liman hamida, Rabbana walakal hamd. However, if you are the imam, or you are in the congregation being led by the imam, then in that case, the imam says, Sami'allahu liman hamida, and that's all he says. And the one being led in the congregation replies, Rabbana walakal hamd, and that's all he says. So what's the difference between opinion three and opinion two? The Imam only says the one. The Imam only says, Sami'allahu liman hamida, and that's it. Then the people behind him, they say, Rabbana walakal hamd. So notice, in the first opinion, everybody, whatever state you're in, you've got to say both parts. In the second opinion, if you're praying by yourself, or you are the Imam in a congregation, then you've got to say both parts. But if you are being led by the Imam, you only say, Rabbana walakal hamd. In the third opinion, if you're praying by yourself, you say both parts. If you are the Imam, you only say the first part, Sami'allahu liman hamida. And if you are in the congregation being led, then only Rabbana walakal hamd. So notice that if you're praying by yourself, all three opinions are agreed. If you pray by yourself, then you always say both parts. Sami'allahu liman hamida rabbana walakal hamd. Then the opinion of many of the scholars is that if you're in the congregation, you don't say Sami'allahu liman hamida, you simply say rabbana walakal hamd. But that is a difference of opinion between the scholars regarding that. Here, a Shaykh al-Fawzan mentions the second opinion to be the opinion that is widespread amongst the people of the uh, uh, knowledge the scholars, which is that the person in the congregation only says, Rabbana walakal hamd. But of course, there are scholars who do take the opinion that you say the whole thing. Sami'allahu liman hamida, Rabbana walakal hamd. Even if you are in the congregation behind the imam. So that is regarding that dua, that supplication as a person rises up from the, from the ruku'ah.
Then after that, عن ابن عباس رضي الله عنهما قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أمرت ونسجد على سبعة أعظم على الجبهة وأشار بيده إلى أنفه واليدين والركبتين وأطراف القدمين متفق عليه in this hadith of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, he says that the Prophet said, I have been commanded to prostrate upon seven parts. I've been commanded to prostrate upon seven bones, upon seven parts. On the forehead, and then it says in the hadith that he pointed with his hand to his nose. He said upon the forehead, and he pointed with his hand to his nose, the top of the nose. واليدين, the two hands, والركبتين, the two knees, وأطراف القدمين, the tips of the two feet, the toes. And this is a hadith which is agreed upon, متفق عليه, al-Bukhari wa Muslim. As Shaykh al-Fawzan says, the hadith is now talking about the prostration, as-sujood, the prostration. هو أعظم أركان الصلاة, that is the greatest pillar of the prayer. The prostration is the greatest pillar of the prayer. لِأَنَّ فِيهِ خُضُوعًا تَامًا بَيْنَ يَدَيْ اللَّهِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى Because there is absolute submission to Allah. When you are in the state of prostration, you're in a state of absolute submission and humility in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that state of prostration. وَلِأَنَّ الْعَبْدَ يَضَعُ أَشْرَفَ أَعْضَائِهِ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ تَوَاضُعًا لِلَّهِ and because the servant, he puts down the most honorable parts of his body onto the ground in humility and, uh, and humbleness in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You put down the most honorable parts of your body, your face, down to the ground in humility and submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَهُوَ أَقْرَبُ مَا يَكُونُ الْعَبْدُ فِيهِ مِنْ رَبِّهِ عَزَّ and the closest a servant is to Allah is in that state of prostration. Prostrating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that is the closest a person is to Allah during that state. So the, prostrate, the prostration, its affair is great. This is a great aspect of the prayer. Uh, and that's mentioned in a hadith where the Prophet said, أَقْرَبُ مَا يَكُونُ الْعَبْدُ مِنْ رَبِّهِ وَهُوَ سَاجِدٌ The closest a servant is to Allah is when he is in prostration. And the hadith that we've already covered previously, وَأَمَّا السُّجُودُ فَاجْتَهِدُوا فِيهِ بِالدُّعَاءِ فَقَمِنٌ أَنْ يُسْتَجَابَ لَكُمْ That in the prostration, then strive hard, <coughs> then strive hard in making dua, uh, strive hard in making dua during the prostration because that is a time that you are likely to be answered. وَلِذَلِكَ فَالْمُتَكَبِّرُونَ أَبَوْ أَنْ يَسْجُدُوا لِلَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلُ That's why the shaykh says those who are arrogant and haughty and proud, those with arrogance and haughtiness, they refused to prostrate because this prostration it's an indication and a sign of your humility an indication and a sign of your submissiveness to Allah. So the arrogant and haughty ones refuse to do that. Allah mentioned in the Quran, وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمُ ارْكَعُوا لَا يَرْكَعُونَ If it is said to them, bow, they do not bow. Meaning here the prostration. If it is said to them, prostrate, then they do not prostrate. حَتَّى إِنَّ بَعْضَهُمْ لَمَّا أَسْلَمَ طَلَبَ مِنَ النَّبِي سَلَّمْ أَنْ يَعْفِيَهُ أَنْ يَعْفِيَهُ مِنَ الصَّلَاءِ it is even mentioned that some of those who became Muslims at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, when they initially became Muslims, brand new when they entered into Islam from the religion that they had been upon before, they entered into Islam very new at the very early brand new stage. And when they realized about this prayer and that you have to bow right down and take this honorable part of your body to the ground, Initially, it wasn't understood to them. They were brand new to Islam, some of them. And when they uh, entered into Islam, they requested from the Prophet ﷺ, 
to excuse them from the prayer. They requested if it was possible to be excused from the prayer. Because they saw that this was submissiveness or uh, humbleness and modesty to a great degree and they were above that. This was when they were new to Islam, right at the beginning and they didn't realize yet. Then afterwards, when they entered into uh, Islam properly, meaning that their iman increased and they understood greater, then they realized and they actually found pleasure in this worship and in prostrating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So previously when they were upon their other religions, they found this a disgrace. They found this to be something degrading. How can we lower our heads down into the ground? But then afterwards when iman entered into their hearts, then they found this to be an act of worship that was pleasing and joyous to them. To lower themselves and and to humble themselves in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the shaykh says, Al-Hasil anna sujood huwa a'zamu arkan salah The point being therefore that the prostration is the greatest pillar of the prayer. لأنه غاية الخضوع والظل بين يدي رب العالمين Because it is at the pinnacle of your submissiveness and your humility in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. ولهذا لا يجوز السجود إلا لله عز وجل. And for that reason, it is not permissible to prostrate to anyone besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is not permissible to prostrate to anyone besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's mentioned that in some of the previous revelations, some of the previous prophets and messengers, it was permissible to prostrate to other people. But how and what? Out of respect. So there are two types of prostration you could say. That there is a prostration of obedience and worship. And there is a prostration not of worship, but simply of respecting someone and greeting them. In this sharia now, the sharia of Muhammad wasallam, both types of prostration are impermissible outside or doing it for anyone besides Allah. It is impermissible to prostrate to anyone besides Allah for whatever reason. If it is for the sake of worship, then that is clearly falsehood, it is shirk. Even if it is, you say, just greeting and honoring someone, it is incorrect and impermissible. Whereas in some of the previous revelations of some of the prophets, it was permissible to prostrate which type of prostration? The one of greeting, the one of worship, of course, was impermissible, it was shirk. But it's mentioned at the time of Yusuf for example, that it was permissible to bow to someone from the greeting or the honor or the respect, not for prostration of worship, of course. That was shirk then and it is shirk now. But in our sharia, all types of prostrations to other than Allah are prohibited. So this hadith, the shaykh says, يُبَيِّنُ sujood. The Prophet ﷺ explains the description of the prostration. فيقول, so he says, أُمِرْتُ أَنْ أَسْجُدَ عَلَى سَبْعَةِ أَعْظَمْ عَلَى الْجَبْهَةِ وَأَشَارَ إِلَىٰ أَنْفِهِ so the Prophet ﷺ, he mentioned that I've been commanded to prostrate on seven body parts, and then initially he pointed to his forehead, or he mentioned the forehead and he pointed to his nose. These seven body parts altogether then, what are these seven body parts altogether? They are the forehead with the top of the nose, the forehead with the top of the nose, and that is considered as one body part. That's where the touching occurs on the ground, the forehead and the top of the nose also, the nose bone. So a person must make sure that those two parts, which are considered as one, the forehead and the nose, that they touch the ground. It is not correct if a person prostrates only on his forehead and none of his nose is touching the ground. Or if a person prostrates with his nose touching the ground and none of his forehead touching. That is incorrect. Rather, a person must combine between the two. The top of the nose touching the ground and also the forehead above it touching the ground. 
both of those body parts must touch. If he only prostrates with one of them, then that person is not considered to have prostrated. The second and the third body parts are the two hands, meaning the two palms. The two palms of the hands that have to touch the ground. الثاني والثالث اليدان يعني الكفين الرابع والخامس the fourth and the fifth الركبتان the two knees the fourth and the fifth are the two knees والسادس والسابع and the sixth and the seventh are the two feet or the two tips of the feet the toes that touch the ground so these are the body parts that a person must touch the ground in the prayer the forehead and the nose, that's one. The two hands, that makes three altogether. Then the two knees, five altogether so far. Then the two feet, seven altogether. Seven altogether, and that is what the tafsir of the ayah is. وَأَنَّ الْمَسَاجِدَ لِلَّهِ That indeed the masajid are for Allah. One of the explanations of that is your seven body parts that you touch down with in prostration. They are for Allah alone, meaning do not use those body parts to prostrate to others. Do not use those body parts to commit shirk alongside Allah. Rather, those body parts are for the tawheed and the prostration to Allah alone. فَدَلَّ هَذَا الْحَدِيثَ عَلَى وُجُوبَ السُّجُودَ عَلَى سَبْعَةِ So this hadith therefore indicates that the prostration must be upon those seven body parts. فَلَوْ رَفَعَ وَاحِدًا مِنْهَا مِنْ غَيْرِ عُذْرٍ خِلَالَ فِتْرَةِ السُّجُودِ كُلِّهَا لَمْ يَصِحَّ سُجُودُهُ So if a person prostrated, they went down and they prostrated, and they kept one of those seven body parts raised up. They kept one of those seven body parts raised up throughout the prostration. For example, a person bows down, prostrates, and one of his feet is itching. So throughout the prostration, he's rubbing one foot onto the other one. For example, throughout the prostration, he's rubbing one foot onto the heel of the other one. So he's got his forehead and his nose down, he's got his two hands down, he's got his two knees down, he's got one foot down, and the other one throughout the prostration, he's scratching the itch that he has on the heel of the other foot. And then he gets up from the prostration. He did that throughout the whole of the prostration. That prostration of his now is incorrect. It is not classified as a prostration. His prostration has not occurred because one of the seven body parts was not touching the ground. Unless the Shaykh says, of course, if that was without reason, if there was a reason, some medical reason he couldn't touch one of the body parts on the ground, he has a broken bone, it is strapped to his body or some reason of that nature. And that's uh, acceptable of course. But here the shaykh says without reason, and scratching or itching or something of that nature is not a reason. Without any reason, if a person doesn't put down all seven body parts, then the prayer, the prostration rather, is incorrect. If a person puts down all seven body parts onto the ground and during the prostration momentarily they move one of the body parts. For example, they have a scratch on their uh, face or somewhere. So they remove one of the hands off the ground momentarily to scratch and then they put it back down again. If it is a momentarily uh, a movement which is only temporary momentarily and then they return back to the seven on the ground throughout the prostration, that is okay. Here the incorrectness of the prostration occurs if one of the body parts isn't touching at all the duration of the prostration. But if during the prostration generally, of course, you are touching the body parts, but temporarily, momentarily, you remove the hand to scratch someone and put it again down, or you scratch the heel with your other foot momentarily and you put it again down, then that prostration is okay. But the problem is when it is raised, the duration of the prostration, and you haven't touched it onto the ground. Then the shaykh, he says, 
والأصل في السجود على هذه الأعضاء وضعها على الأرض مباشرة من غير حائل that really the prostration the way it should be done the default is that you should touch those seven body parts directly onto the ground they should be touched directly onto the ground without any other barrier in between you and the ground that is what is better هذا هو الأفضل وَإِنْ سَجَدَ عَلَى حَائِلْ بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَ الْأَرْضِ فَلَبَأْسِ But if there was some other obstruction between you and the ground, and you prostrated upon that, it is still correct and it is not a problem. Then the scholars, the shaykh, he mentions their opinions regarding this topic of how you prostrate on the ground if you must touch the actual ground or if there was something in the way could you prostrate on that thing in the way which would then be classed as the ground or not here the scholars they mention some opinions regarding that or rather they mention the different types of barriers that may be between you and your prostration on the ground one type of obstruction or barrier between you and the ground would be something which is separate and distinct from the ground. Separate and distinct from the ground, separate and distinct from you. For example, the Shaykh says, Kalfarash, some type of carpet or rug, some type of blanket, something on the ground, which is therefore not the ground directly itself, but something placed on top of it some sort of a rug or some blanket or something of that nature which is above it. Separate and distinct from you. It's not a part of you, it's a blanket or something laid down on the floor. Then that type of thing, it is permissible and your prayer would be correct, your prostration is okay. The second type is some type of obstruction which is directly attached to you. Some type of obstruction that is directly attached to you. For example, <coughs> the imama, when you wrap this around your head, you've seen it when they wrap it around their heads, worn as a wrapped around like a turban. So when somebody prostrates, it's possible this turban may come within that prostration and touch the ground, etc. That type of thing, again, the sheikh says, it is correct, still your prostration, it is permissible. Tarafu uh, thawbihi. Uh, a part of your thobe, uh, a section of your thobe or your clothing, as it's mentioned about some of the companions that when they used to prostrate down onto the ground because of the heat of the ground, the severe heat of the ground, they would uh, spread their garment or they would uh, slightly move their garment into the way and prostrate upon that, extend and pull their garment out so they could put their hands and faces upon that rather than directly on the ground. So this garment is attached to them. But they were spreading it out as they went down into prostration to prostrate upon that. So that is permissible also, the shaykh says, something attached to you, which uh, becomes like an obstruction directly between you and the ground, like your clothing or your imama. Then that is correct also. The third category is something which is attached to you and in fact it is directly attached to you meaning one of your own body parts one of the body parts of prostration itself meaning if a person prostrated and put his hands in front of him he didn't want to get his head and his nose dirty he's praying outside the masjid is full he doesn't want to get his forehead dirty with the pebbles so when he prostrates, he, put his, he puts his hands right in front of him and puts his forehead and his nose onto his hands. That prostration would be incorrect now. Now you've created a barrier between yourself and the ground from your own body parts in that way. That is incorrect. المتصل به وهو من أعضاء السجود فهذا لا تصح صلاته فلو بسطك فيه على الأرض وسجد عليهما بأن وضع جبهته عليهما لم تصح صلاته So if a person did that, you go down into the prostration and you put your hands in front of you, your knees are down, your feet are down, your hands are down right in front of you together 
and then you come and put your forehead and your nose on top of your hands, then that is an incorrect prostration. That the prayer would not be correct if the person was prostrating in that way throughout the prayer. So that is regards to uh, the body parts that need to be touching when a person makes the prostration. After that, An Ibn Buhayna, radiyallahu anhu, أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم كان إذا سجد فرج بين يديه حتى يبدو بياض إبطيه متفق عليه The hadith of Ibn Buhayna One of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ His name was Abdullah uh, And he was uh, given the name or the title after his mother Ibn Buhayna Just like for example Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum so uh, this companion, he narrates here that the Prophet ﷺ, when he used to make the prostration, فَرَّجَ بَيْنَ يَدَيْهِ حَتَّى يَبْدُوَ بِيَاضُ إِبْطَيْهِ That he would split between his hands, between his arms, until the whiteness of his armpits would become apparent. Until the whiteness from under his arms would become apparent. Meaning that it wouldn't be prostration with the arms squashed next to you, Rather, the prostration was with open arms. Prostrating with open arms such that the underarms could be seen. The underarms would be visible. أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم كان إذا سجد فرج بين يديه معناه أنه يباعد عدوديه عن جنبيه عليه الصلاة والسلام ويبالغ في ذلك حتى يرى بياض إبطيه. The Shaykh says meaning that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم would split between his two arms from his side, take them away from his side, such that the underarms could be seen, or the whiteness of the underarms could be seen. فَدَلَّ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ عَلَى الْمُجَافَةِ بَيْنَ الْأَعْضَاءِ فِي السُّجُودِ فَالْمُسَلِّ يُجَافِي عَضُدَيْهِ عَنْ جَنْبَيْهِ وَيُجَافِي بَطْنَهُ عَنْ فَخِذَيْهِ وَيُجَافِي فَخِذَيْهِ عَنْ سَاقَيْهِ بمعنى أنه لا يلصق واحدا من هذه الأعضاء بالآخر فالمجافاة إذن سنة The Shaykh says this indicates that in the prostration it is sunnah to split up, to separate the areas of your body. So when a person prostrates his two hands, he puts them out with a gap opened up away from the side of his body. Not tucked in next to his body, rather away from the body and open, such that the underarms can be visible. Similarly, his knees at the back, his knees, or rather his calves, should not be touching his thighs. They should be separated, a gap, not squashed up such that your thighs are practically sitting on your calves. That isn't the way. Rather, there should be a gap between the person's uh, uh, thighs and calves. Uh, and similarly, between the thighs and the stomach. Similarly, between the thighs and the stomach, the legs and the stomach of a person. So you shouldn't be crunched up in the prostration. Rather, a person is spread out such that his stomach is not touching his thighs. Um, so this spreading out in the prayer, it is sunnah. If a person did squash himself up such that his knees and his thighs are touching his stomach and his hands are squashed up and his arms next to his body touching his side of his chest, then if a person prostrated in that way, the prostration would still be correct. The prostration would still be correct and the prayer would be correct. But this person who prostrates in that way has left one of the sunnahs of the Prophet ﷺ. The sunnah is to space yourself out in the prostration with the arms out wide and the stomach away from your knees and your legs spread out long ways. This is the sunnah, but if a person squashed himself up for whatever reason, then the prayer would still be correct. And that's why the scholars, they mention that this is something which occurs with ability. If you're praying in the congregation, for example, <coughs> in a row where there's people either side of you, it's not going to be possible to pray with outstretched arms. Then in that case, if you are forced to have to put them closer to yourself, closer to your body, then the prayer is correct. So here it's mentioned that when the possibility is there to do that, then it is to spread them out and to prostrate in that spread out manner, 
But if the situation doesn't allow it in congregation when it's tight and the rows are next to each other, then you're not able. So pray to the best of your ability there. If you have to keep your arms closer to each other, then so be it and that is permissible. There is one other time when the scholars mention it is permissible to uh, pray in a manner where it is opposite to this spreading out. Where in a manner you are somewhat squashed. The scholars they mention, uh, there's narrations when the Prophet ﷺ used to pray lengthy prayers. Lengthy prayers. And the prostration used to be lengthy. That some of the companions used to come and speak to the Prophet ﷺ and ask him about these lengthy prayers and the difficulty of those lengthy prostrations. So then it's mentioned in the hadith that the Prophet ﷺ said, Ista'inu bil That seek assistance from your knees. Meaning that in the prostration to keep your arms out wide in this manner for a long prostration, then it becomes difficult on the arms. So the Prophet ﷺ said to them, See, Take assistance from your knees, meaning you can prostrate in the lengthy, long prostrations with the elbows resting on your knees in the prostration. When you're down in that position of prostration, you can rest your elbows onto your knees. So it's as if the pressures of the body are balancing each other out. The elbows from the front and the knees from the back, they're hitting each other and they're balanced out. So that will be a position where you can stay in longer without becoming tired. So here it's mentioned that in that type of lengthy prayer, a person could do that, prostrate in that manner where the arms are in tight on the knees for the purpose of making it easier to be able to prostrate the lengthy prostrations and the lengthy prayer. But otherwise, generally speaking, the sunnah is to be outspread. So khulasa, in summary, the shaykh says that spreading out is a sunnah. That should be done. Bishart, however, the shaykh says, be aware, an la yubalig fiha. Do not exaggerate. Of course, it is to spread out, as we've mentioned, such that the underarms could be seen, and that your stomach is away from your thighs and your legs and your knees. However, the shaykh says, do not exaggerate. Do not take the arms as far as you can stretch them. Do not take the body out as far as you can go to the extent you'll almost fall. It's not to exaggerate and become extreme in it, but everybody understands separation. To remove the arms away from the side of the body, to remove the stomach away from the knees, but not to fall into extremism and exaggeration and spread out across further than you're even able to bear. So that is something that a person should do, the general spreading out when possible, and when it's not, the person can pray at a more closer level in the prostration, and it is permissible and correct. Then after that, وَعَنِ الْبَرَاءِ ibn Azib رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ قَالَ قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهِ وسلم, إِذَا سَجَدْتَ فَضَعْ كَفَيْكَ وَارْفَعْ مِرْفَقَيْكَ رواه مسلم in this hadith, Al-Bara' ibn Azib radiallahu anhu says that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, when you prostrate, then put down your two palms and raise your two elbows. Put down the palms and raise your elbows. Which leaves you in the same position as the previous hadith mentioned, your arms outside away where your underarms are showing. So this hadith says, the hadith of Muslim, put down your palms and raise up your elbows. Put down the palms and raise up the elbows. تَقَدَّمَ أَنَّ الْكَفَّيْنِ مِنْ أَعْضَاءِ السُّجُودَ الَّتِي أُمِرَ النَّبِي صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ بِأَنْ يَسْجُدَ عَلَيْهَا فَلَا بُدَّ مِنْ وَضْعِ الْكَفَّيْنِ عَلَى الْمُصَلَّى حَالَةَ السُّجُودِ لَكِنْ إِنَّمَا يَضْعُ الْكَفَّيْنِ فَقَطَّ وَلَا يَضْعُ الْذِرَاعَيْنِ وَيَفْتَرِشْ The Shaykh says a person has to be careful when you prostrate. You put down the palms, your hands on the ground, but you do not put down your forearms. Do not put down this full forearm onto the ground and prostrate like that. That is a mistake and we did the hadith already talking about how not to prostrate like the animals when they sit down and they put their legs down in front of them. If you prostrate like that with your full forearm up to the elbow touching the ground and then you try to spread the arms, you can't do it anyway and that type of posture is incorrect. And it was mentioned about not prostrating like the predatory animals or like the uh, dogs. فَكَانَ سَأَسَلَّمْ إِذَا سَجَدَ وَضَعَكَ فَيْهِ وَرَفَعَ ذِرَاعِي So the Prophet ﷺ, when he used to prostrate, he would put down his palms and raise up his arms. 
فَالذِّرَاعَانْ يُرْفَعَانْ وَيُجَافَيَانْ عَنِ الْجَنْبَيْنِ كَمَا سَبَقْ So the two arms are to be raised up and spread away from the sides of your body. وَلَوْ إِفْتَرَشَهُمَا عَلَى الْأَرْضِ كَانَ ذَلِكَ مَكْرُوهًا وَمَنْهِيًّا عَنْهُ And if a person was to put it down flat with his elbows and uh, forearms down, then that is something which is disliked and it is something which is prohibited and that is not the way of the prostration. Unless, of course, again, like you said, you're in a state where you are unable to move. Sometimes it may be so crowded, that is all you're able to do and it's impossible to move them away. And that is a situation of necessity. But outside of that, when you have the ability, you pray in this proper manner. After that, وَعَنْ وَائِلِ بْنِ حُجَرْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ أَنَّ النَّبِيَ صلى الله عليه وسلم كَانَ إِذَا رَكَعَ فَرَّجَ بَيْنَ أَصَابِعَهُ وَإِذَا سَجَدَ ضَمَّ أَصَابِعَهُ this narration of Wa'il ibn Hujar radiallahu anhu, that the Prophet ﷺ, when he used to make the ruku' he would spread his fingers. When he would put them on his knees, he would spread the fingers, meaning he wouldn't hold them together like that on the knees, right next to each other, clutching the fingers on the knees. Rather, he would spread out the fingers, make a gap between the fingers when holding the knees in the ruku'. Whereas this hadith mentions that when he was in the prostration, he would put them together. They would be together in the prostration facing towards the Qibla. That's what this particular narration mentions. هذا الحديث فيه صفة وضع أصابع اليدين في الركوع والسجود فقد كان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا ركع فرج بين أصابعه بين أصابعي بمعنى أنه يلقم كل يد ركبة ويفرج بين أصابعها فهذه هي السنة. وَإِذَا سَجَدَ وَضَعَ كَفَيْهِ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ وَضَمَّ أَصَابِعَهُ فَأَوْسِقَ فَأَوْسَقَ بَعْضَهَا بِبَعْضِ مِنْ أَجْلِ أَنْ تَتَّجِهَ كُلُّهَا إِلَى الْقِبْلَةِ فَهَذِهِ هِيَ السُنَّ الَّتِي كَانَ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ So when the Prophet ﷺ was in the ruku' he would open the fingers slightly and spread them and holding the knees. But when he was in the prostration, he would put them all together uh, as per this narration in order to make them all face towards the qibla in that direction. Then the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha قالت رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يصلي مترببعا that I saw the Prophet <coughs> I saw the Prophet praying cross-legged sitting down cross-legged التربع معناه أن يخالف بين ساقيه فيضع أحدهما على الآخر ويجعل قدمه اليمنى تحت فخذه اليسرى فخذه اليسرى ويجعل قدمه اليسرى تحت فخذه اليمنى وَيَجْلِسُ عَلَى مَقْعَدَتِهِ مُتَرَبِّعًا Meaning that you place your right foot under your left leg and your left foot under your right leg and you sit upon your posterior. Meaning cross-legged. That you sit in the cross-legged fashion. And this is mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ did pray sitting in that position on occasion. وَقَدْ فَعَلَهُ النَّبِيُّ صَلَّى اللَّهُ فِي الصَّلَاةِ لَمَّا عَجَزَ عَنِ الْقِيَامِ بِسَبَبِ سُقُوطِهِ عَنِ الْفَرَسِ وَانْفِكَاكَ قَدَمُهُ And this is mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ prayed sitting cross-legged on an occasion when he was unable to stand because of an incident whereby he had fallen from a horse and dislocated or some joint in the leg had uh, misplaced itself. So he was unable to stand. So at that time it's mentioned that instead of the standing, he would have to sit during the prayer. And when he would sit, he would sit in the cross-legged fashion. فَإِذَا صَلَّ جَالِسًا فِي الْفَرِيضَةِ لِعُذْرٍ أَوْ فِي النَّافِلَةِ وَلَوْ لِغَيْرِ عُذْرٍ فَإِنَّهُ يُسْتَحَبُّ أَنْ يَكُونَ مُتَرَبِّعًا فِي حَالَةِ قُعُودِهِ الْمُقَابِلِ لِلْقِيَامِ So if somebody is not able to stand up. Somebody isn't able to stand up. They can't do the standing up part of the prayer. Then if that person is going to sit on the floor during the standing up, because he can't stand, he has to sit during that part, then this is one of the ways to do the sitting, and this is what's mentioned, to sit cross-legged. To sit cross-legged during that time when the standing is occurring. أما في حالة سجوده بين سجدتين وقعوده في التشهدين فهذا سبق أنه يكون تارة مفترشا وتارة يكون متوركا. So as for when it comes to the time of 
the prostration, then in between the two prostrations, and the final sitting, then you're not supposed to sit cross-legged, then you sit in the fashion that we already mentioned, with the left foot down and the right foot placed up, that sitting has already been described, how to sit when doing the tashahud, and in between the two prostrations. So this hadith is explaining that if a person prays sitting down, they can't stand up, then the manner to sit down would be cross-legged. To sit down cross-legged, and to do the ruku' from that cross-legged position. But when it comes to the sujood, then to do the sujood, to do the prostration, and sitting in between the prostration in the proper manner described, with the left leg down, the right foot up, and the tashahud also, with the left leg down, the right foot up, or the tawarruk that was mentioned, when the left leg goes under, the left leg goes under the right uh, shin, and you sit upon the posterior once again, and the right leg is... Uh, <coughs> held up, the right foot is held up. So that normal sitting occurs in the tashahud and between the prostrations. But in the time of the standing, equivalent to the standing part of the prayer, then a person could sit cross-legged. We'll leave it at that hadith today. I will continue from hadith number 300, the hadith of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma regarding what the Prophet ﷺ used to recite in between the two prayers, what the Prophet ﷺ used to recite in between the two prostrations rather, what the Prophet ﷺ used to recite in between the two prostrations, and we'll carry on from that point onwards uh, from next lesson insha'Allah ta'ala. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين When you're standing up in the rows Standing up in the rows, then a person has to straighten the rows. So if a person's feet or ankles are touching and the shoulders are touching, then that ensures that the row is straightened. That is something that ensures that the row is straightened. And that is mentioned in the narrations. There are narrations about that, about the ankles touching, about the shoulders touching, not leaving any gaps in between the people in between the rows. But there's going to be some more narrations coming regarding that yet about how to make the congregation, how to set up the rows, that type of thing inshallah will come in detail as well yet. Uh, if, you, if you combine the Maghrib and Isha, mm. uh, what's the ruling about the, the Rabbah table uh, after Maghrib? You, you I can't remember, it? there's a fatwa from uh, some of the scholars, but I forgot how they mentioned it. We'll check the fatwa, there is a fatwa of the scholars, this question has been asked. If you combine between Maghrib and Isha, then when do you pray the Sunnah of Maghrib? When do you pray the supererogatory parts of the prayer, the optional parts, the rawatib, uh, and the du'as, the dhikr as well? When do you do the dhikr in between? There are fatawa of the scholars. We'll bring the exact fatawa, inshallah, next time. I'm not aware of the fatwa. There is a fatwa of uh, Sheikh Ubaid and Sheikh Muhammad bin Hadi and Madkhali and several scholars. They mentioned it's permissible to combine in the, the summer months. But if you say in that situation somebody has no need, they're going to be awake anyway. They don't have any need to be to combine. They can come back to the masjid as normal at Isha time, then do so. There's no nothing wrong, then do that. Pray your Maghrib and come back and pray your Isha. If you have no reason to combine, you're going to be awake. It's better for you to come back to the uh, prayer. You can do that. Allah alam. We'll check uh, what the scholars advise. Sheikh Hassan said that if the masjid, if they're joining and you're in that community, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sheikh Hassan Abanna mentioned about staying with the congregation. So, remember. But we'll, uh, we'll try to find out more from uh, uh, the scholars who gave the fatwa originally. 
scholars who mentioned these uh, rulings originally when they were asked about it will try to get more details of these because there are a lot of questions about it then how do you go about doing this, how do you go about doing that and situations like that when the masjid is closed afterwards we'll try to get some more details by next week, uh, by uh, in two weeks time the next lesson inshallah so we'll leave that for today then